want to do Numbers 5 and Numbers 6 tonight. And I know I say that every week, but this week I really do mean it. I really want to do Numbers 5 and Numbers 6 tonight as much as possible here. Let's pray. Lord, open our eyes that we can see wondrous things from your law. And as we get ready to get into some very unique chapters here in the book of Numbers, it just reminds me that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, correcting, and rebuking. So, Lord, we are excited to see what your word has to say tonight through your spirit. Help us to know this, grasp this, understand this in all ways. In your name, amen. All right, a little quick reminder here as we're getting into the book of Numbers. We spent the last few weeks here talking about the idea of numbers, literally numbers, the census. And then we talked about how the Levites and all their roles in ministry and how the focus has been the center of this tabernacle that they all camped around. So the tabernacle's in the meeting and you got two and a half million Jews camped around this place because this tabernacle represents God's presence, the holiness of God. To the point of, in Deuteronomy 23, when they go out to war and they make camp, to go into war, that the camp itself is holy. We talked about how that very unique verse in Deuteronomy about how you take a shovel with you when you had to go use the facilities because God is holy to even go outside the camp. Now when you get into Numbers chapter 5, and and Numbers does this amazing job as a book of having these ideas of verses that are narrative, and then they have verses like this that are law, then it goes right back into narrative. And if you can stick with us here in Numbers, in just a couple chapters, we get into some really neat stories that are going on that shows what happens during this wandering. Now please remember this. The second half of the book of Exodus only covers about a year and a half. You get in Leviticus, that only covers a month. You get into Numbers, that covers close to 40 years. Then you get into Deuteronomy, that covers about a month. What happened in the book of Exodus is you see the law being given. You see this idea of it being set up. And then in Leviticus, you get to the actual details of the law. Not a lot is put into practice at that moment in time. Here now in Numbers, you start to see this real big push that you've been taught the law, you've been shown the law, and now we're going to go ahead and start putting this into practice. So if you kind of read through Numbers here and you stop and you say, well, why are we going through this? Because didn't they already cover this in Leviticus? Yes, they did. The best way to describe it is this. Imagine going through the class, going through the training, and now you're actually out on the field doing it, and you need a little refresher, and you need some more practical application of how this works. For example, tonight in Numbers chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, we're going to talk about lepers. Well, Leviticus 13, 14, and 15 go into all the detail about it, Numbers 5 now is, hey, let's put this into practice. And that's why it's so important to understand how Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy all flow together. Because if not, you get to passages like this tonight and you're like, why in the world are we suddenly talking about lepers? Now, before we get into that, we have to once again establish this point. We're dealing with the holiness of God. The holiness of God. That is huge. To be quite honest, I think a lot of us take the holiness for God for granted. Boy, if you live back in the Old Testament, as we talked about last week, you're serving in the tabernacle, and if you were part of the Kohites, and you were getting ready to move the instruments of the tabernacle, if you even looked at them, you died, it would really teach you the holiness of God. To make sure that you understand this holiness of God, if you remember correctly, the high priest it says in Exodus 28 this. It says, You should also make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holiness to the Lord. And you shall put it on a blue cord 
and that it may be on the turban. It should be on the front of the turban. So it shall be on Aaron's forehead that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel hallow in their holy gifts. It shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. So if you were walking and you saw the whole high priest, you would see this literally on his forehead, holiness to the Lord. It was a pretty big reminder. God is holy. This tabernacle represented his holiness. So all these rules and laws here in Numbers represent his holiness. Leviticus 18, please. Verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. According to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwelt, you shall not do. According to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you, you shall not do, nor shall you walk in their ordinances. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. That's the point of the law. Everything you learned in Egypt, forget it. Everything you're going to see in Canaan, forget it. You're going to follow my rules. And these rules right here are for your safety, for your protection, and my holiness. So therefore, when you see how the Egyptians did marriage, you're not doing marriage their way. When you see how the Canaanites do marriage, you're not doing marriage their way. If you see how the Canaanites handled this, you're not doing it that way. These rules. So when you read through Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy and Numbers, you're saying, why, Lord? Why? It shows that Israel is set apart. It shows that Israel is holy and that we have a calling to be different. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Start in verse 16 with me. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. Let's stop right there and think about that for a second. You are the temple of the living God. So everything we have read so far in the book of Numbers, understanding the holiness of the tabernacle, of God's presence, of everything there, God says now in 2 Corinthians 6, you are the temple. Let that sink in then of the holiness. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. I don't understand this, but every now and then you run into this idea of ministry that we should be like the world in every way possible, but just more moral. That, that's not the teaching of the Bible. When you read in the Bible, it is this idea of separate yourself from them. Now, it does not mean separate yourself from them that we all go hide in the mountains and wait for the return of Jesus Christ. What it means is the way that we live our lives is so completely, utterly different from them. We are called to be different. 1 Peter 1.15 But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. We're supposed to be holy in our conduct. But the problem is so often as believers, we dress like the world. We talk like the world. We watch the exact same movies the world watches. We watch the exact same TV shows the world watches. We listen to the exact same music the world watches. Then how are we different? We're called to live, speak, and act differently. I like how the New Living Translation does Romans 12 too. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. 
Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. We have to get this foundation laid. If we don't get this foundation laid, you're going to look at these messages, you're going to look at these rules saying, why are we talking about lepers again? God is holy, and this is how he shows his holiness and how we live and how we act. So why now? Why now in the book of Numbers? They have established the tabernacle. They have established the holiness. They have established the campground. They have established how they're going to be living here for the next whatever years. Guys, there's two and a half million people living in a very tight area. There's going to be health issues. There's going to be community issues. There's going to be marriage issues. You know what it's like to live close together. You know, we have 10 people that live in our house. And I remember a few years ago, we had a season where there was nine of us sharing one bathroom. So nine of us sharing one bathroom, and we had two teenagers at the time, foster kids. And I tell you, we needed some Levitical law at that time on cleanliness, community, and marriage. It would have helped out a whole awful lot. Two and a half million people, folks, in a very small area, trying to live in the holiness of God, called to be different. That's what you see here with these rules. And I'll hopefully try to bring some light to that as we get into it. Numbers chapter 5, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper, everyone who has a discharge, whoever becomes defiled by a corpse. You shall put out both male and female. You shall put them outside the camp, and they may not defile their camps in the midst of which I dwell. And the children of Israel did so, and put them outside the camp as the Lord spoke to Moses, so the children of Israel did. Once again, this is not anything new. This has already been established back in Leviticus. And if you want more rules on the idea of the lepers, you just go read Leviticus 13, 14, and 15. It goes into explicit detail of everything that is involved with it. The Lord is saying, it's time now. You've been taught it. The camp is set up. You know where everybody camps. You know where the tabernacle is going to be. It's time now to go in and say, anybody with a discharge, anybody with leprosy, anybody with a skin disease, it's time for you to go outside the camp. Now, you may say, well, this sounds harsh. In some ways, it is a little harsh. They're moving outside the camp until this skin disease thing gets taken care of. Now, there are certain rules for that. So once again, if you go back and read Leviticus 13, 14, and 15, you will see this idea that God says, listen, if this can be taken care of, you can come back in. But for your health and the health of others, you have to be separated. Imagine having a camp like this, and this still happens in present day society, where you have a whole lot of people, a lot of maybe refugees in a very small, tight area. Diseases spread very, very quickly. Once again, there's 10 of us in our house. My, my wife and the kids are here at church for the first time in three weeks because we just got done through stuff. So as we walk near you tonight, we'll just yell unclean, unclean. But we're, we're good now. It spreads. And I know when sickness comes through our house, it's except the fact it's going to take about a week or two to get through everybody. It just does. Now imagine millions of people. There's a skin disease. We need to move you outside the camp so it doesn't spread. Defiled by a corpse. Well, that's not fair. I don't know why the corpse died. So we're going to get you outside the camp here until we can find out what's going on. These are safety steps taken for health issues, community issues, marriage issues, etc. There's also a spiritual aspect to this. If you study out leprosy, leprosy is a great picture of sin. It works slowly, it works quietly, and it eats you up from the inside out. Now, there's a whole different lot of types of leprosy. You've got the extreme leprosy of where people's fingers and digits fall off. 
And you have other leprosy that's just an all-encompassing term for skin diseases there. So that's once again all covered in Leviticus 13, 14, 15. Obviously, Jesus had a special place in his heart for the lepers. How often do we see in the Gospels him going and touching them and healing them? Every time he touched the leper, please realize he was breaking the law. Aren't you glad you have a law-breaking Savior that's willing to come down and touch us ugly lepers and make us right in Christ? That's a beautiful picture of grace and mercy. But leprosy, once again, spiritual picture of us slowly, quietly eating us up from the inside out. And so therefore, we need to be touched. We need to be taken care of here. So you see here for the skin diseases, you see for death, you see for leprosy, a a purely simple, straightforward, yes, it spiritually represents more, but there's also the practical of this too. Let's get you outside the camp here and keep everybody safe until we can figure out what's going on with you. So that's the first part that you see there in Leviticus 5, 1 through 4, for the holiness of God. We don't need you walking around the camp in the tabernacle at this moment. Any quick questions here about leprosy and the skin diseases, etc., and with the understanding that pretty straightforward there, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page. Okay. Yeah, John. And, and that's the beauty of it is him coming in. I mean, think about the times. I heard a teaching one time, and I wish I could give credit to who did it, but basically the title of the sermon was Don't Invite Jesus to Your Funeral. If you look in the Gospels, Jesus is messing up funerals all the time. There's times where the coffin's going by and Jesus reaches out and touches it. He's defiled according to the law. But like John is saying there, it's completely different. I am a sinful leper that according to Paul in Romans, I'm walking dead. And Jesus touches me and makes me right in him. It's a beautiful picture of grace and mercy. I should be outside the camp dying, and yet Christ is touching me and making me whole again. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture there. All right, next one. Verse 5. 1 through 4, you see health. 5 through 10, you see community. You have now millions of people living beside each other. Once again, think of present-day society, refugee camps, etc. You have health issues. You have crime. How are we going to handle crime? How are we going to handle neighbors living right on top of each other? Verse 5, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. When a man or woman commits any sin that men commit in unfaithfulness against the Lord, and that person is guilty, then he shall confess the sin which he has committed. He shall make restitution for his trespass in full plus one-fifth of it and give it to the one he has wronged. But if the man is no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest in addition to the ram of the atonement with which the atonement is made for him. Every offering of all the holy things of the children of Israel which they bring to the priest shall be his. And every man's holy things shall be his. Whatever any man gives, the priest shall be his. So we have the health issues in verses 1 through 4. Now we have community issues. What's going on in these community issues here? Somebody does something. It's pretty vague. If you go back to Leviticus, you can start getting details. Remember, Leviticus is giving you all the detail. Numbers is saying, now we're putting it into practice. So just keep that in the back of your mind. So let's use the example of stealing something from Leviticus. Your neighbor stole something from you. Once again, millions of people living there right beside each other, all near each other. What do you do? Well, you call them out. You follow the law. And then what happens is this. Step one, verse six, 
confess. When a man or a woman commits any sin that men commit in unfaithfulness against the Lord and that the person is guilty, if you have like an NLT or NIV, it talks about that sin being against a person. Verse 7, then he shall confess the sin which he has committed. God wants us to live at peace with each other, so he puts specific rules in here on how to do this. This has not changed. He still wants us to have peace with each other. I just started making a list here of all the verses of peace, and I'm just going to give you a few. Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. You make every effort to live at peace with people. To the point of that in Matthew chapter 5, if you are giving your gift at the altar and it comes to your mind that this person's upset at you, Jesus said, leave your gift at the altar and go make peace with them. Do you realize how deep that is from a law standpoint? You are before the altar getting ready to sacrifice this animal and it comes to your mind through the Lord, boy, Fred's really upset at me. Jesus says, leave the gift. But Lord, I need to make this sacrifice for you. No, 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 no. You need to go make peace with your neighbor. The animal will always be there to be sacrificed. You need to go make peace with your neighbor. That's how quickly we're supposed to do it. It blows my mind when I run into somebody and I talk to them. They're like, yeah, I know I'm wrong. I I should probably contact them and tell them I'm sorry. How about right now? No, not right now. I'll see them around. Dude, text them now. Call them now. Email them now. Write them now something. Leave your gift at the altar. Why carry that bitterness, that anger, that frustration? The Bible says in Hebrews it becomes a root of bitterness and it defiles you. Here's the thing about bitterness. It's a root of bitterness. It's underground. You don't see it. And that root is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And you're losing joy and peace, etc. You need to forgive them. If they have wronged you, you need to forgive them and let it go. And you may need to go to them and say, listen, I'm sorry to you for what I have done. You know, Paul in Philippians 2, when he was trying to say, hey, what can you pray for? Listen to this verse. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Paul says, you know what gives me joy? Is when you guys all get along. I know as a pastor, you know what gives me joy? When the body of Christ gets along. You know what gives me joy in my house? When my boys get along. You know what gives me joy in my marriage? When Dawn and I get along. There is a joy when you're one accord, one mind, same love, like-minded. So someone's come now and confessed. We just let it go? Well, according to the law, verse 7, there's restitution now. One-fifth, 20%. There's a 20% restitution that you pay the person for whatever wrong that they committed there. And once again, numbers is very generic. You have to go back to Leviticus to find specifics. So therefore, somebody stole something from you. You return it, and now you do 20% more. Wow. Why? The restitution shows the heart really wants peace. The restitution shows that you really do want things to be different. It's not just words. Come on, parents, you've never done this to your kids? Tell your brother you're sorry. Fine, I'm sorry. Good, everybody's getting along now. Go play. Talk about a forced apology. 20% restitution shows, tell your brother you're sorry and give him five bucks. Try that at home. See, it, it changes everything a little bit. New Testament, 2 Corinthians 7. Paul speaking, now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. 
For you were made sorrow in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Godly sorrow produces repentance. I am sorry. And Old Testament Leviticus numbers, I took this, I'm wrong, here it is back, and 20%, and I confess to you I did it. That changes everything. Husbands, we messed up, we come home with flowers. Changes things. Have we ever seen this in practice in the New Testament? You bet we have. How about Zacchaeus? Remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man? When Zacchaeus got right with the Lord, remember he was a tax collector, it says, Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Zacchaeus said, I am now right with you, and the way I'm showing I'm right with you is I'm going to go make restitution to people. That's what the law required. And I'm not just doing 20%, I'm doing fourfold. You may need to go to somebody and confess And you may need to make restitution in the sense of maybe you need to write them. Maybe you need to send them a card. Maybe you need to send them a text. But you need to confess first, then make restitution. Remember, you have millions of people living in a very tight area for many years. It's going to get tense. God is saying, here's how we're going to handle this, folks. We're not going to have shootouts out the Wild West. We're going to follow these rules. To the point of even if the person that you want to go make restitution to in 8, 9, and 10 has died... You don't get out of it. Your restitution now goes to the priesthood because there has to be something that shows I am sorry, I confess this, and I want to build a bridge and make peace, and I will humble myself, and I will do this. One through four, cleanliness health issues. Five through 10, community issues. Verse 11, marriage. Before we get into marriage, any questions about the whole 5 through 10 restitution, confession thing, Zacchaeus? We good on that? Okay. Folks, I don't know how else to tell you this. 11 through 31 is one of the strangest passages in the Bible. Verse 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully toward him, and a man lies with her carnally, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and it is concealed that she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, nor is she caught. If the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, and he becomes jealous of his wife, who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, and he becomes jealous of his wife, although she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest. Now we're going to stop right there. Husband thinks something's up. You're spending way too much time with Fred, honey. I think you did something. Now this is what we're going to do. To see, oh, I didn't do anything. Well, we're going to find out if you didn't do anything. We're going to take you to the priest. We're going to do this offering, 15. He shall bring the offering required for her. One-tenth of an ephah of barley meal. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it because it's a grain offering of jealousy, an offering for remembering, for bringing iniquity to remembrance. See, there was this beautiful grain offering that you could do back in Leviticus chapter 2. And it was this beautiful thing that I'm sure smelled Wonderful. You had the oil, you had the frankincense, you had the, the, the meal part and the grain, and you could kind of make it unique a little bit. But for this, there's no oil and there's no frankincense. The oil and the frankincense is what made the sacrifice smell good, taste good. Now this is a harsh sacrifice. No oil, no frankincense. Oil in the Bible represents Holy Spirit. Frankincense, that aroma, shows, says it's pleasing to God. There's no joy in this. There's no blessing in this. This is harsh. 
Okay, just keep that in the back of your mind. This is a harsh sacrifice going on because this is an intense situation. And we're going to do this, but we're taking the oil out of it and we're taking the frankincense out of it because this is not a lot of fun. Reminds me a little bit as a pastor when I do marriage counseling. I love meeting with people, but when you meet with them for marriage counseling, there's usually not a lot of oil and there's usually not a lot of frankincense. It's not a lot of fun. Verse 16. The priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. The priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. So you got water and you got grain and you got dust from the tabernacle. 18. Then the priest shall stand the woman before the Lord, uncover the woman's head. That would be a very big deal. Put the offering for the remembering in her hands, which is in the grain offering of jealousy. And the priest shall have in his hand the bitter water that brings a curse. And the priest shall put her under oath, saying to the woman, If no man is lain with you, and you have not gone astray to uncleanliness, while under your husband's authority, be free from this bit of water that brings a curse. But if you have gone astray, while under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself, and some man other than your husband is lain with you, then the priest shall put the woman under the oath of the curse, and he shall say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people, when the Lord makes your thigh rot and your belly swell. And may this water which causes the curse go into your stomach and make your belly swell and your thigh rot. And the woman shall say, Amen, so be it. Right there, 22 is key. That's key. Before you look at this and say, well, wait a second here. I'm thinking this is unfair. She's saying in 22, I agree. Lady, if you did something wrong, you better not be saying, Amen, so be it. (laughs) 23. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book. He shall scrape them off into the bitter water. And he shall make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse. And the water that brings the curse shall enter her to become bitter. Then the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand, shall wave the offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the offering as its memorial portion, burn it on the altar, and afterward make the woman drink the water. When he has made her drink the water, then it shall be, if she has defiled herself and behaved unfaithfully toward her husband, that the water that brings a curse will enter her and become bitter, and her belly will swell, her thigh will rot, and the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and may conceive children. This is the law of jealousy when a wife will under her husband's authority goes astray and defiles herself. Or when the spirit of jealousy comes upon a man and he becomes jealous of his wife, then he shall stand the woman before the Lord and the priest shall execute all this law upon her. Then the man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her guilt. Now you read this and this is pretty intense and the reality is this is pretty intense. Why is this so intense? They're coming out of a culture of Egyptians where there was not this biblical idea of marriage. They're going into a land of Canaanites where there is not a biblical idea of marriage. You want the gal, you take the gal. You want the guy, you take the guy. There's no rules, there's no nothing. God is saying, we're not going to live like them. We're going to live different. We're going to honor marriage. One of my favorite verses in Hebrews, the marriage bed is honorable. I believe we live in a society today where we do not honor marriage. Here we are, we're going to honor this. Well, all these people living together, there's going to be rumors, human nature, jealousy. Husband can't just be taking his wife out and stoning her left and right. That's not fair to her. Can't be making accusations left and right. That's not fair. According to the rabbis there of Jesus' time, they reached such a point of divorce laws that you could divorce for any reason whatsoever. So if the husband says, my wife cheated on me, I'm done with her. Well, we'll prove it right here. 
Are you willing to take this drink? Are you willing to drink this knowing this will happen? And the woman says, amen, so be it. If she takes that knowing she did something, that's pretty foolish. At this point right now, it'd be wonderful for her to say, I did it, I'm wrong, I'm sorry. Let's move towards repentance, I hope, and forgiveness. If not, the husband needs to swallow his pride and say, I'm wrong. And the priest, I hope, at this point would look at the husband and say, buddy, stop it. I was listening to a teaching on this, and he says, I think you should add one verse in verse 32 where the woman's allowed to take a two-by-four and hit the husband if she's free from this. <laughs> he said the reality was, though, you would hope that if a man, and, and if ladies, if you've ever been around a jealous man, it's an awful, awful joy-stealing marriage, that you would hope someone would stand up to this guy after a while saying, you've got to quit bringing your wife before the priest. you just got to quit doing this. This is actually protecting her in many ways protecting her because this would probably be done publicly so here's this man dragging his wife in saying she was with fred i know it she drinks it takes it nothing happens and everybody's like oh she was huh boy the cried wolf here a little bit this is actually protecting her in some ways shows how god honors marriage now i i don't know how far to take this symbolically I do believe that you should always look for Jesus in the Old Testament. I really do believe that. And I really do believe that it says, according to uh, Paul, that all these Old Testament examples were given to us for our edification. There's a lot of little neat symbolisms in here. And I, know, I don't want to teach it as doctrine. I just want to throw it out there and say, isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that it's the dust of the floor of the tabernacle? And isn't it interesting when the woman was caught in adultery in John that Jesus wrote in the dust? I'm chewing on that. I'm just chewing on that. Isn't it interesting that it's the woman and not the man? And it's this idea here that the woman is called to be pure for her husband. And the Bible calls us the bride of Christ. That we're called to be pure. That we're called to be pure for the Lord. There's just a lot of little neat things in here. There's the practical of this, that, hey, for the next 40 years, not this time they don't know it's the next 40 years, but God does. For the next 40 years, we can't have everybody making accusations and and doing this. This is how we're going to handle this. But there's also just a lot of neat things that when you go and you study this out to say, wow, Lord, look at all the layers. Look at all this. And this is what I love about something like the book of Numbers. Looking at all these little details saying, okay, Lord, what is this? What do you want us to see here? So you see the practical and numbers five of health issues, community issues, marriage issues. But through it all, you also see God's grace and mercy. And you see a picture of Jesus touching the lepers. You see a picture of restitution in the body of Christ saying, listen, I'm sorry for what I've done to you. And I want to make it right. I'm sorry. And I'm going to leave my gift at the altar and I'm going to live at peace. Can you imagine that the body of Christ lived in peace with each other? I see so many churches spending all their energy fighting each other. They have no energy left to go out and spread the gospel. Can you imagine if every church would just stop and say, listen, I've wronged you. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And we forgive each other. And we have all that time and energy left to go spread the gospel versus just always fighting with each other. Can you imagine if marriages could take away the spirit of jealousy and we could stop and say, listen, I'm not going to bring you before the priest to make you drink that because I'm just going to love you as Christ loved the church and I hope that you're going to honor and respect and submit unto this and then we can just move forward in the Lord. Some really neat pictures here, some really neat things going on in Numbers chapter 5. All right, I got 10 minutes here so we can get into Numbers 6 a little bit but before we get into that, any uh, quick questions here about anything in Numbers 5? Understand once again, why is this given to us now? They've set up the camp, 
They know where people camp. They know where people are going to live. We're now living in this society. We need to have practical rules on how we're going to have millions of people live. We've learned it in Leviticus. We're putting it into practice here in the book of Numbers. And we're going to be holy. Holiness to the Lord. A different people called to live differently. Not like the Egyptians. Not like the Canaanites. Called to something different. And that's how we're going to go out and live. Any quick questions? Okay. Numbers chapter 6. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman consecrates an offering to take the vows of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord. Stop right there. Nazarite vow. That's what number six is about. Nazarite vow. Nazarite's an interesting word. It means separated or dedicated. We see some Nazarites in the Bible. The most famous Nazarite is Samson. If you remember that from Judges chapter 13. And he was a Nazarite. It looks like John the Baptist kind of had some Nazarite things going on. It looks like Paul maybe took a Nazarite vow. But we know for sure that Samson was definitely a Nazarite. Now, I'm stealing this point from a a pastor by the name of Damian Kyle that I like to listen to. Why is this thrown in right here? See, this is where if you look at this, why is this right here? Damian Kyle makes this point. He goes, you just got done studying Everything the Levites got to do. You just got done studying everything that the Aaron priesthood got to do. He goes, now imagine you're from the tribe of Reuben. And you're camping around the tabernacle. And you're looking at these Levites like, man, look at the privilege they have. The privilege and the honor they have of serving. in the Boy, look at the Aaron, the priesthood, what they get to do. I want to do something. But if you go near the tabernacle, you're put to death. If you try to sneak in, you're going to be put to death. So, Lord, I love you so much. I can't go serve in the temple. I can't go serve as a Levite. I can't even get near the stuff. What can I do to show you, to show the world that you are everything to me? You can take a Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow is that way of dedicating yourself, separating yourself to the Lord to say, I love God so much. This is how I'm going to go live my life. What does it look like? Verse 3. Please note in verse 2, though, it's open to man and woman. Separate themselves to the Lord. Nazarite means separated, dedicated, consecrated. Verse 3. He shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. He shall drink neither vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice nor eat fresh grapes or raisins all the days of his separation. He shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. Point number one. No grape juice, no wine, no grapes, no raisins, no skins, no nothing. Nothing. Five. All the days of the vow of his separation, no razor shall come upon his head until the days are fulfilled, for which he separate himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. Then he shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. You don't cut your hair. Next one, six. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. He shall not make himself unclean even for his father or his mother, for his brother or his sister. When they die, because his separation to God is on his head, all the days of his separation, he shall be holy to the Lord. Do you see that theme, holy? God wants holiness. And that hasn't changed. It's God still wants holiness today. Real quick teaching point. Hebrews 10.10. Hebrews 10.10. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's so important to state at this point. We are made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. God demanded holiness in the Old Testament. 
Don't touch the tabernacle. Don't look at the stuff. If you have leprosy outside the camp, this is how we're handing community issues. This is how we're handing wedding issues. This is how we're handing Nazarite vows. Holiness, holiness, holiness. We get to the New Testament. How am I supposed to be holy, Lord? Through Jesus Christ. He that knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 I am a leper, thief, sinner, awful in my marriage, and Jesus comes and touches me and makes me holy. Oh, that's, that's, that's the beauty of this. So, Lord, how do I show you I love you? Because look at everything you've done for me. Old Testament, take a Nazarite vow. For whatever time period you want, 30 days, 40 days, 50 days, 60 days, Samson took it for his life. You would become a Nazarite then and say, this, this, this is how I'm showing the world that I love you. Now, do we do this today? No, we don't do this today. We're not under law. How would we show this today? How about you just go out and live crazy for Christ? Back to our first passages that we went through. God has called you out of the world. So that means I don't need to watch, listen, dress, speak, act like the world. I have been called out, separated, dedicated to the Lord. So my lifestyle will look so completely, utterly different. I mean, you know, and you can envision in your mind, if you see a woman that's Muslim, if she's wearing a burqa, you know she looks different. You can see certain supposed Christian groups that the way they dress, they look different. It's not about the external. It's about the internal. And the problem is we can make a focus of an external difference and say, look at me, I'm a Christian because I wear these clothes, I wear this cross, I wear this shirt, I have these tattoos, I do this. God wants your heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. In the Old Testament, though, We're going to live this way to show that. And even in the New Testament, my external living should show an eternal change. So if I've been changed on the inside, that should come out on the outside. That's why I think it's so important when it comes to preaching Christ, we preach Christ, not morality. Sometimes I see us as Christians preaching morality. Hey, quit living together. Hey, quit getting drunk. Hey, quit getting high. Hey, lady, dress better. Have they been changed in Christ? No, but they're morally better. So they're morally better, but still going to hell. If they get changed on the inside, hopefully the changes on the outside will come. Now, what do these things mean and represent? Verse 3, no grape juice, grapes, wine, raisins, etc. Look to the detail. Verse 4, eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. It reaches a point where you don't even get near a grape. That sounds really legalistic. I wrote down in my notes, don't test the ice. Don't, don't go on the ice and stomp on it to see if it's solid enough. Just don't go near the ice. It says in Ephesians, do not get drunk on wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. I don't want the joys, pleasures of the world to control me. I want the Holy Spirit to control me. And so by staying away from these drinks in the Old Testament, it shows I'm not looking for the pleasures of the world. I'm looking for the pleasures of God. So therefore, I stay away from those pleasures of the world because I'm so focused on the Lord and I am so sincere about this, I'm not even going to go near the grapes. Well, one little grape won't hurt you. I don't even want to test it. I don't want to test it. So I'm going to make myself clear that I'm not going to make a deal where I watch those things, do those things, look at those things, think those things. I'm going to stay away from it. What about the next one, the hair? 
Well, back during Old Testament time, if you saw a man with a whole bunch of hair like that, he would look different. You would see that idea that there is a visible difference in the way. There was an external change from what happened on the inside. I can't imagine somebody would do a Nazarite vow like this unless they really want. There's no force to. There's no have to. This is a conscious, voluntary decision. So if you see somebody with the long hair, they're doing this because they want to. Not a have to. What about the whole dead body? Don't go near a dead body. Verse 7, even if it's your dad, your mom, your brother, your sister, what does that show? A sacrifice of relationships. It's not about my family. It's not about my mom, my dad, my kids, my wife. It's about Christ. I see a lot of people worship at the altar of family. We got to be careful about that. Jesus himself said, love me, hate them. Now, before you jump on the whole hate them, you study it out what it really means is Christ is saying your love for me is so strong that it looks like hate because you love me so much and I've used this example many times before I love my kids and I love my wife next to Jesus dawn is the greatest thing God's ever given me but dawn didn't die on the cross for my sins dawn did not fill me with the Holy Spirit and dawn's not opening the gates of heaven to me Christ is I have to have my identity in Christ my kids are with me now they're eventually going to move out My identity can't be as a husband. It can't be as a pastor. It can't be as a parent. It has to be in Christ. So what happens? And I got to pick up the pace here a little bit. Verse nine, someone dies very suddenly. I got my Nazarite vow. I made the Nazarite vow for 70 days. It's day 69. Almost done. Talking to Fred. Fred's dead. Just like that. Fred just dies right in front of me what do I do? I go to the priest, make an offering, shave my head, start again in eight days, verse 10, but verse 12, but the former days shall be lost because separation was defiled. Man, I had an 80-day vow and I was on day 79 and Fred had the audacity to die right in front of me. Shave the head, start again in eight days. That sounds unfair. I don't think that sounds unfair. I think that sounds like grace. Start again. Aren't you glad you can start again? Can you imagine if it was one and done? Can you imagine if Christianity was one and done? Oh, James, you're saved until you sin. And then you're out. Aren't you thankful for grace and mercy and second chances? Oh, I love that. I got to really pick up the pace here, though. So what happens, and at the end of the vows, you come and you offer verse 14, male lamb, you lamb, ram, flower. This is an expensive sacrifice. No one forces anybody to do this. It is completely, utterly free will. You can go as deep as you want in Jesus Christ right now. You can read as much as you want. You can pray as much as you want. You can worship as much as you want. No one's going to force you to. That's why Christ said count the cost. If you did a Nazarite vow, you realize what you're giving up for an extended period of time. You realize how you're living for an extended period of time. Mom and dad dies, you don't go to the funeral. Loved one dies, you don't go. And when the time comes for the offering to be done, you're offering up a whole lot. You come, you cut your hair, verse 18, you lay it on the fire, and therefore the sacrifice is offered. Verse 21, this is the law of the Nazarite who vows to the Lord, the offering for a separation, and besides that, whatever else his hand is able to provide according to the vow which he takes, so he must do according to the law of his separation. Completely, utterly, free will, 
in all ways and all things just to stop and say, Lord, I love you so much. I want everything and I want to go deeper in you and I'm willing to make the cost. I'm willing to make the sacrifice of the pleasures of this world. I'm willing to stop and make my external life different. I'm willing to go lose relationships for you and I'm willing to offer up financially for you as well too because I just want you, Lord. This is what I'm finished with. Can you go with me to Romans 12, please? Romans 12. We don't have Nazarite vows today, but I tell you when you read Romans 12, it's that same mindset though. Romans 12 verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. A living. God's not asking you to go out and martyr your life. He's asking you to be a living sacrifice. I'm going to live in this world but be so totally over to you, Lord. Holy, there's our word. God wants holiness. Acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's what he's asking us to do. He's not forcing it. He's not pushing it. It's a free will choice that you can make to choose to become that living sacrifice in all ways and all things. So you are in the tribe of Reuben. And you can't serve at the tabernacle. And you're sitting there and you're saying, Lord, I just love you. I want more. Numbers chapter 6, then be a Nazarite vow. You can go out there and say, Lord, this is how much I love you. I'm willing to make these sacrifices and do these things. Remember, Aaron priesthood, tribe of Levi, they had to. Had to. Nazarite vow, completely volunteer. Christ doesn't make me love him more. I get to choose to do that. And what a blessing that is. And if I mess it up, oh, the grace and mercy of the Lord, he still comes and touches the lepers. you got to love it. All right, it's after 8 o'clock here. Any final quick uh, questions about anything here before we close up? Mark. Samson, when he uh, the Yes. It doesn't say that he actually did this. I mean, obviously there were thousands of souls being dead around Mm-hmm. Um, Damien Kyle teaching on that, so I'll just give him full credit because he actually talked about that. He said, when you study out Samson, Samson had such a focus on the external, the hair, that he didn't really have the understanding of the internal heart. Because he obviously had defiled himself. He defiled himself with death. He defiled himself with dead animals. He defiled himself in many different ways. And if you look to when he's talking there at the end with Delilah, he's so prideful about his hair. So, and it looks like, this is my opinion, if I was teaching through Samson, it's after his head was shaved. And the Bible says very neatly in the book of Judges that his hair began to grow back. It wasn't that his hair growing back gave him strength. It looks like Samson's heart on the inside started to change and he finally fully understood what it meant to be. He had the external hair, but he did not have the internal heart. Same thing can happen to us today. We can be like Samson. I can externally carry around my Bible and proclaim Christ, but unless my heart is right with him, I mean, what does it say in Matthew chapter 7? Away from me. I never knew you. That's a, that's a pretty powerful verse there. Yeah, Samson's quite the guy, and I encourage you, go study out Samson. I think he's Judges 13, I think. John. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, it is more than just going to church. Um, it's, it's not the external, it's the heart. And, and we keep going back to that. Please remember, Judas walked around with Jesus, saw miracles, heard those teachings, saw it firsthand, and his heart wasn't there. I, I'm reading through Galatians right now, and in Galatians, it's, it's, the, it's the spirit. It's the spirit. You want to follow the spirit, not the flesh. And it's just this idea of, Lord, I want you. And if you guys ever read uh, Greg Laurie's devotional, his devotional this morning was really good on working righteousness. This idea of what does it mean to go out and actually go live the life. You know, it's, it's, it's really deep when you stop and study it out and pray it out. All right. Hey, it's, it's after eight here. We need to close up. Would you guys stand with me, please? Um, Lord, help us to see you and then go out and live this in all ways and all things. Lord. And help us not to do just the external, but do what's on the inside. Internal, Lord. Let us really have it from the inside out, living for you. And Lord, help us, just, just to be completely honest, if there's a sin that's in our life, I just think of that leprosy, we see it, Lord. Help us to realize the seriousness of it. Holiness to the Lord. Thank you for being a God that touches the lepers and heals us and forgives us. You're such a beautiful God and we love you in your name. Amen. Guys, have a good week and God bless.